Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, If you're using a chair pew Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 1008. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we will uh, look this morning at verses uh, 3 through 17. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. I'll actually begin at verse 1, just to get the fuller context. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me and ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we come to his word? And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, This is the very word of God to us, his people. uh, And we pray that you would unstop ears so that we might hear. um, Open minds that we might understand hearts that we might embrace, lives that we might seek to fulfill that which you have called us to here. All to the honor and glory of Christ our Savior, we ask it. Amen. Um, So it's entirely possible that Disney has done marriage a disservice. 
Um, you know how all those Disney princess films end. And they lived happily ever after. Right? And there's this assumption, I think, among people kind of raised on that, that, that happily ever after really means um, uh, happily perpetually after. Or happily always and at all times after. As though, as though marriage isn't hard, as though marriage isn't difficult, as though there's no conflict. I think Disney, in that sense, has done marriage a disservice. It has communicated something about marriage that we know isn't true. I wonder sometimes if we haven't done the same thing with evangelism. So a, a church sign not too long ago that said, Jesus makes everything better. Okay, but, I mean, if we really are, are trying to evangelize, if we really are telling people about Jesus, and we're communicating to them that if you believe in Jesus, then everything's going to be happy and pleasant and roses, and you'll never have any issues with other people, we're lying to them. Jesus tells us otherwise. Life tells us otherwise. This passage tells us otherwise. That, that the reality is we deal with conflict and struggle in life regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. The question is, what's its function? What's its purpose? What's its aim? And so this passage then is written to give us one day. I'm just going to glue this to the top of the little microphone thing. Uh, so this passage is written to give us a better perspective on discipline, quite honestly. It reorients our thinking around, and our understanding, I guess, around the trials of life. Notice, first of all, uh, don't get your hopes up. It's just two points, but don't let that, you know. Discipline comes from a loving father. I don't know if you noticed or not, uh, nine times, in seven verses, uh, the word discipline appears. Okay, here's a, here's a sidebar. Um, you're reading the Bible. You're, you're, you're trying to understand. You want to know what the writer means. Um, one, of the, one of the clues, if you, if you bump into a word that shows up nine times in seven verses, it probably is important. So when you bump into repeated words and phrases and stuff in your in your study of scripture, then and, and you're still kind of scratching your head. I don't understand. I don't get it. Start with the stuff that shows up a bunch in a really small amount of time. And so nine times in in the span of seven verses, we have this word discipline. It, the Greek word is paideia for the two of you that are interested in that sort of thing. It has to do with. Training children. It's literally the, world, the word for child training. It's also the same word that shows up in 2 Timothy 3 when we talk about Scripture being breathed out by God and profitable for training in righteousness. That word training is the same word here. The reality is, I don't know anybody that likes discipline. I don't know anybody who relishes the idea of being disciplined. Part of the picture here is that that would actually indicate a, 
a, a level of growth, a level of, of sanctification that many of us lack. But even the writer recognizes in verse 11, nobody likes discipline. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's, it's unpleasant. And we would much prefer pleasant over painful The last time you walked down a, a difficult road, the last time you endured the trials of life, the last time you had to deal with difficulty and conflict, were you excited? Were you clapping your hands? Or were you actually thinking things like, I'm not sure God's paying attention. I'm not sure God actually loves me. Right now, I'm not sure God has a clue what's going on in my life. You see, the implication there is if he did, I wouldn't be going through this. If he did know and if he did care, that seems to be what this original audience was thinking. That seems to be the, the kind of mindset they had as they faced the the trials and difficulties of, of life in Christ. These, having been raised Jewish, converted to uh, Christ, now facing some sort of persecution, in danger of throwing in the towel and giving up altogether. And for that matter, we read back in chapter 5, I believe it was, that they have walked with Christ long enough, or they've been committed to Christ long enough, that they should be teachers themselves, and yet they're not. They don't understand they're not yet there you ever think to yourself I, I, sh I should know better than to accuse God of not caring I should know better than to suggest that God doesn't actually love me and that that if he did I wouldn't be going through this I know I'm supposed to know better that you're in the same boat as these people be encouraged. This passage is for you. It's for us. Because we wrestle with the same sorts of things. My guess is everybody as a child at some point or another has even suggested, you know, mom, dad, if you loved me, you wouldn't discipline me. It hurts. I don't like it. It makes me angry. The kinds of thoughts that go through our minds. But notice what this passage tells us. What does that discipline prove to us? It proves the exact opposite. That what we're receiving is evidence that, that God loves us and that we are his children. Discipline doesn't prove that God is mean and hateful. Discipline doesn't prove that he's absent. It, it proves, verses 5 and 6, that God looks to you and says, you are my child. Therefore, I love you enough to discipline. Therefore, I love you enough to train you. The writer quotes from Proverbs 3, a, a proverb that his audience would have known. They would have had it memorized. Um, chunks of, of Proverbs. Even for, for use in, in worship. In the local synagogue. Uh, they would have known this 
proverb and he simply cites it back to them to say, remember what God's word tells you. Discipline is for the children that I love. So instead of being evidence that God doesn't care, evidence of God's disappointment with you, evidence that God is paying you back for something you did wrong. The reality is that their conflict and struggle and difficulty in life, the discipline that we face, is evidence that He loves us and cares for us. You think about what Christ has done. What are the, what are the, the gifts for believers? What are the benefits that we have as Christians? Well, Christ has accomplished our salvation. He paid the debt that our sin deserves. He earned the righteousness that we can't and don't have. But He's done more than that. Because when we look in faith to Him, not only are we justified, declared righteous in His sight, we're adopted by God as His children. That's what... That's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, right? In John 1, the Word became flesh, and to those who received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. And so as believers, as Christians, we know that we have this standing before God that is, He's our Father and we are His children. And Christ, in that sense, is our elder brother. But what son is there, verse 7, whose father doesn't discipline him? And the writer uses, the writer has this habit of using these arguments from the lesser to the greater, right? We, we, he does this over and over and over again throughout this book where he says, basically, well, if this is true, how much more so if something else? Well, that's exactly what he does here. Earthly fathers discipline their children. And we respect them. Earthly fathers discipline their children, and rightfully so. And nobody questions it. Why then do we question it when our Heavenly Father begins to discipline and correct and train? Because here's the thing. Earthly fathers sometimes lose their cool. Earthly fathers, don't look around the room, y'all. I see everybody looking at each other. Earthly fathers sometimes don't do it well. Sometimes earthly fathers discipline their children as though, as though they, not we, right? I won't say we, they, as though they are God and you've offended me and we don't really care much that you've offended God. Sometimes we... I mean, they discipline in anger and frustration. And yet we still respect them for it. Sometimes earthly fathers discipline, recognizing that quite honestly, I don't actually in this moment, I don't have your best, best interest at heart. I have my own personal peace and comfort at heart. And yet the passage encourages us, reminds us that 
When Jesus, when God disciplines us, he does so for our eternal good. For our long-term good. If we accept the discipline of a sinful earthly father, how much more should we accept the discipline of a perfect, righteous, heavenly father? In fact, the reality is, verse 8 It's that discipline that proves you're an actual son and not an illegitimate child. It's written in, you know, the 60s-ish A.D. to a Roman world. True children, actual sons, were trained. They were taught the law. They were taught how to fight. They were taught how to be Roman citizens. Illegitimate children... We're ignored. And so when a father turned his back on his son, it was evidence not of his love for him, but of his anger at him and his disapproval. And, and the, even the earthly son understood that this training, this discipline is for my good and evidence of his love. The same was true for the Israelite experience. Discipline wasn't merely rebuke for doing things wrong but it actually carried with it the idea of, of education, of training. In fact, have you ever, you ever thought about the difference between punishment and discipline? Like sometimes we will say that we're punishing our children. That's fine. That's fair. But I would argue that's only half of the point. What's the difference between punishment and discipline? Punishment is a reaction against an act. Punishment is retribution for something that you have done. Punishment is handing down some sort of, of, you have to make this payment, whatever it may be, for an act that you have committed, for something that you have done in the past. You broke a law. You did something mom told you not to do. That deserves punishment. And it does. It's true. Discipline isn't about the act, it's about the heart. Discipline isn't about what you did. Discipline is is about training towards the future. Because our disobedience reflects a heart that says, I don't want what you want for me. And so our training, discipline, reorients our hearts And our desires toward God and His Word. Punishment is aimed at the act in the past. Discipline is aimed at the heart in the future. And so this passage reminds us that God disciplines us. He trains us. He brings conflict and suffering and difficulty. Why? To steer our hearts to greater dependence on Him. Discipline comes from a loving Father. But second, discipline aims towards Holiness. Notice in verse 10, we're told exactly that. They, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. His aim is that our heart would more and more desire to know and love and serve 
him and put sin to death in our lives. Did you notice verse 12? There's a therefore. You, you know the rule, right? The, the, the rule is, well, there's, there's really two rules. One is, uh, the first rule is that, that any time a preacher comes into a therefore, he has to give you the rule. That's rule number one. Rule number two is the actual rule, right? When you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? It, it connects. It says, in light of the things that I've said so far, here's what you're to do. Here's your reaction. Here's your response. Here's the thing that grows out of what has just been said. The writer is basically saying, look, what I'm about to write to you is connected to this fatherly discipline. And so he continues his athletic illustration. It began in verse 1. We've seen several of them throughout the book of Hebrews. But it began in verse 1, which reminded us that the Christian life is really a marathon. It's not a sprint. He called us to endurance, to a long, steady run, pursuing after Christ. But what happens at mile, I don't know, I've never been insane enough to run a marathon. Probably the longest I've ever run was somewhere in the seven, five, seven mile range. What happens somewhere around mile 15? You're past halfway. You still have more than 10 to go. I just can't imagine at mile 15, the arms get tired. They drop. Your knees, your legs turn noodly. You know, like, like you're pretty sure they're not strong enough to hold you up, much less keep you moving forward. You, you've gotten weak in the legs and you can feel yourself like this when you're trying to run and your arms aren't helping because they're too weak to keep pumping and to keep those legs moving. But that's exactly what he says here in verse 12. Therefore, in light of this fatherly discipline, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. The reality is this fatherly discipline is intended to strengthen us for the marathon that is the Christian life. He encourages us with this better perspective on discipline. That it's our sonship. It's our adoption as his children. That should encourage us to give, uh, and give us the strength to sort of press on in this race. Why can you run? Why can, why can you continue with endurance this race marked out before you? Because you know that this discipline isn't evidence of God's absence. It's proof of His love for you. So as we endure trials, we're reminded this is evidence of God's love. And as you read the rest of this passage in, in verses 12 to 13 to 17, really, there, there are several things we're Commanded to do and things we're commanded not to do. Notice in verse 14, for example, strive for peace, strive for holiness. Peace, I think we get. What's holiness? It's not sinless perfection because we aren't going to get that. 
We don't get sinless perfection this side of heaven. The reality is holiness has more to do with with our relationship to God than with our actual moral perfection. It has more to do with, it's a, a relationship term. It has more to do with the fact that we're set apart and belong to God as his children and therefore should live in light of that family name. It's evidence of our sanctification. It's evidence of our spiritual growth. And there are people out there, I've, I've said this before, there are people out there who will tell you that uh, it's wrong to use this kind of language of striving for holiness. And they would tell me it's wrong for me to tell you to do that. But it's right here in Hebrews chapter 12. Strive for peace. Strive for holiness. They would say that really the, the thing you need more than anything is to remember that, that God has saved you and that you're his child and that's really all you need. But this passage goes on to say, look, in light of the fact that you're God's child, we should live to honor that family name. We should live to bring him honor and glory. This is a, the clear massive message of this passage is a call to fight, to press on, to endure. Notice there are also things that we are called not to do. See to it, verse 15. No one fails to obtain that no root of bitterness springs up. See, this is the problem with church fellowship, right? The problem with church fellowship is that people are in it. And when people are in it, conflict happens. When people are in it, bitterness is possible. Look, I can live at peace with all kinds of people if I'm alone on an island. This matters because we're called to not just to strive for peace and holiness, but also to not let bitterness take root and bear fruit in our lives. There's a command also that no one be sexually immoral. And then he uses the example of Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Does that sound like an odd, like, I'm sorry, birthright, single meal, sexually immoral. I don't, I'm missing the connection. The connection is this. Esau sold the future for the present. He sold what might come, what would come, what was to come for something he wanted right here and right now. He sacrificed the future for the immediate pleasure of the presence. So much so that when he sought, verse 17, it, that is the blessing, not repentance, mind you. When he came back and said, Father, bless me. And he said, I can't. Esau didn't repent of his sin. He merely wanted the blessing. His tears were because he couldn't be blessed, not because he wept over his sin. In other words, it finally reached a point where having rejected God so long, God rejected Esau. Isn't that the warning? Isn't that the warning against Falling away? Isn't that the, the warning in this passage that we not go on rejecting God so long that He 
rejects us. Now look, let me be clear. Nobody in this passage was losing their salvation. John 10, Jesus says, look, once someone comes to me, nobody can take them out of my hand. I can't lose them. I can't, you can't lose your salvation. Those who are truly converted and trusting in Christ will not fall away. But the warning still stands because these are people who may very well, like 1 John tells us, were here and among us, but really never belonged, never trusted in Christ. Let me also make sure you've got the order right. Nobody in this passage, none of us, is striving for these things so that God would love us. The therefore matters. It's not do these things, don't do these things, therefore God will make you his son. The passage says, you are God's child. Therefore, we need to make sure we have the order right. God loves you and has called you to be his own and therefore disciplines and trains you to make you holy. Discipline comes from a loving father. Discipline is aimed at holiness. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. The first is this. Um, the Christian life is a team sport. Did you notice all the plural stuff in this passage? Right? Strive for peace with everyone. I mean, you, you don't have to look very hard to find out that that, that requires relationships. That requires other people. Strive for peace with everyone. Don't let bitterness uh, spring up and cause trouble. That requires other people. Sexual immorality. All these things require some amount of involvement of other people. These are relationship commands. The Christian life is a team sport. And, and notice that as you strive for peace, you're not looking just for your own holiness, but the holiness of your brothers and sisters also. As, you're, as you seek to root out bitterness, it's not just your own holiness and whatever happens to them, that's fine. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you are. The Christian life is a team sport. Second application, the Christian life is an intense sport. Lift, strive, strengthen, those aren't lazy boy Christianity words. Those aren't sit in your recliner, hope for the best, grow by osmosis words. The Christian life requires striving after Christ in response to His grace by the work and power and help of the Holy Spirit. It requires that we hate and forsake the kingdom of darkness, that we, that we literally put sin to death in our lives. Take the knife, jab it in its throat, make the blood gush, make it as gory as you have to. Because that's really the image Paul gives us in Romans to put sin to death. Our striving is a response to our relationship. And our striving is merely a desire to see the, 
the world that is yet to come begin to manifest itself in this one. A third and final application, the Christian life is a sport whose outcome has already been determined by Christ. Look, this room today knows losing. There are not many people in this room who won their football game yesterday. By my count, we're talking about maybe five. Right? There's a lot, a lot of people lost their game yesterday. That's not true of the Christian life. Your game's already won. Christ has won it for us. He's already sealed the victory. He's already secured the big W for us. And it wasn't us. We aren't the ones that did it. We didn't keep these commands and say, look, at the end of the life, look what I've done. No, we get there and we say, Jesus, you've done it all. Right? He has accomplished our salvation. He has brought his kingdom on the earth. May God grant us the grace to participate in the expansion of that kingdom. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that our salvation is safe and secure in Christ. That he has called us to be his own and that you have now uh, called us by your name and adopted us as your children and that you are at work rooting out sin in us, growing our dependence on you. Father, we admit we hesitate to pray that you would do just that. Because we know that that means suffering and conflict and difficulty. But Father, would you discipline us? Would you conform us more and more into the image of Christ as we are being renewed and remade in the whole man? Not so that we might seek glory for ourselves. Not with an eye towards, uh, look at how great and wonderful we are but purely for the honor and glory of Christ our King who has sealed our victory. And we ask all of this in His name. Amen.